this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us! Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tosh Robinson, Genevieve Kosky, and Keith Phipps. On last week's show, we talked about the weird and whimsical comedy Big, about a 13-year-old Jersey boy who wakes up in the body of a 30-year-old and tries to survive and thrive in New York City. This week, we're bringing in the new superhero movie Shazam, which owes such a debt to Big that it includes a giant piano as an homage. The latest, and perhaps lightest and silliest, entry in the DC Extended Universe, Shazam stars Asher Angel as a 14-year-old foster child named Billy Batson, who's chosen as quote-unquote the champion of eternity by an ancient wizard. What this basically means is that whenever Billy says Shazam, he turns into a swole superhero, played by Zachary Levi. Shazam has the power of the Greek gods, the strength of Hercules, the stamina of Atlas, the speed of Mercury, and the powers of Zeus. He can even do cool magic tricks, like charging people's smartphones. His sidekick and best friend is a disabled kid named Freddie Freeman, played by Jack Dylan Grazer, who lives with him at the foster home. Billy and Freddie have a great time testing Billy's new powers, but he inevitably gets some resistance from a bad guy named Dr. Thaddeus Savannah, played by Mark Strong, who once had the opportunity to be the champion of eternity, but failed the wizard's test and has been trying to recover that power for himself. All this unfolds over a tight... Checks notes, 132 minutes. <laughs> we'll spend a slightly shorter amount of time talking about it after the break. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. His name is Captain Sparklefingers. No, it's not. It's not my, it's not my name. Chosen one. You're like a bad guy, right? You literally did the opposite of what a superhero is supposed to do. You're him. You're the hero. You're welcome for not getting robbed. 
like that back. Give him back, man! How old are you? Basically 15. You electrocuted a bus and almost killed these people. And then I caught it! And leave tall buildings in a single bound. So Shazam, the DCEU, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are we excited? Uh, what did you think of the movie Shazam? Can we just establish, like, just as a baseline thing that the wizard Shazam is a big old jerk? Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, he's the worst. I mean, okay, so he only grabs small children. He puts them through this traumatic event. Then he tells them, you're not good enough and dumps them back into reality. He doesn't give a crap what it does to them. He gets what he deserves. And then he screws it all up, you know? He he makes such a big mess for himself by being so damn picky that by the end, he basically has to give his power to the only kid left, who <laughs> is demonstrably not a better kid than some of his other options. And all sorts of bad things result. I just, what what is up with you, magical spell guy? You're a jerk. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like a, there's not always, but very often a sort of like funhouse mirror quality to heroes and villains origin stories, mm-hmm. you know, and that's obviously what happening here because Shazam the wizard made Savannah into the I hesitate to call him a super villain because he's really a pretty meh villain <laughs> but but you know he created Savannah as we see him in, in this movie just the same way that he created uh Billy so I guess in that sense it works that said going back to like what we actually thought of this movie yeah all of that stuff like all the wizards layer stuff all the stuff having to do with Savannah the seven deadly sins I could leave that entirely. Like, I do not care for that part of this movie at all. And there's a lot of it. Like, it takes a while for us to get to Billy and the the fun stuff, which, and I really do like the fun stuff. I love the, I'll I'll just say it, I love all the big stuff, you know, the Mm -hmm. him figuring out his superpowers and then, you know, kind of testing their limits and figuring out how to be this different sort of being, you know, um, that was all incredibly fun. I, I liked the whole themes of family and the whole foster home vibe and the, the payoff for that with the big fight at the end, I think worked really well. But man, I wish it hadn't been in service of such a really bad villain plot. It's a rare movie that I think that you actually think has a good action climax and mm-hmm. kind of, I'm not sure the villain himself is all that interesting, but he becomes the actual conflict between them. It becomes more compelling as it goes along. I'm with you though. It, it starts off as dark as any of the DCEU movies and it takes a long time to get started and uh, I'm not sure that the level of violence and it really serves you know what ought to be their core answer to this film is, is which is kind of like the younger end of the superhero mm-hmm. of yours because like the that boardroom scene is really quite yeah. upsetting and graphic yeah uh, just based on my own experience uh, some children might find it a little too scary <laughs> um but yeah. uh um but yeah once it, i think it's this movie's a lot of fun i mean once it gets going and once you get to billy and once it lets itself be a comedy it's really uh terrific and and you know maybe you actually want to see more adventures with these characters and and uh i think levi's terrific i think it's again not to get premature with the comparisons but i think there's a nice uh synchronicity between the the adult and child performers of that character that that makes you believe that they are the same person yeah i was i was talking about this film briefly with adam on film spotting and i we were stuck on that idea too about what is the audience for this film Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, because there are scenes of great darkness and intensity but at the same time there's so many sections of the movie i would just absolutely love to take both my 
you know, seven year old and eleven year old too, and have absolutely no problem with whatsoever. Uh, but but it's absolutely unfathomable to me to take the seven year old and even the eleven year old. I'm not sure about because mm-hmm. because there are moments that are really dark and they're not really. They don't serve the film well. Yeah, I mean, even I'm, just I'm, that complete, I'm completely on board with everything Genevieve said about the movie. I think it's just, you know, what works about the film and what doesn't work about the film is all of that stuff at the beginning and all of the really dark elements, the villainous elements, the seven deadly sins. Like none of that works. Tasha, I think the seven deadly sins are kind of scary, though. I mean, it, exactly, but, but yeah, to they what, just, they to just what look like CGI mud. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're saying all right, Tasha, Tasha come I, in and defend the seven deadly sins. Oh, I'm not going to defend the seven deadly sins. Uh, we when I saw this with my husband and some friends, we talked a lot afterwards about the failing of the seven deadly sins. Is like. When you're handed the seven deadly sins as villains, like what an opportunity to like explore like all of the horrors of being human, like all of the failings of being human, all of the weaknesses of being human. There's nothing thematic in this movie that is interesting about the fact that the bad guys are the seven deadly sins. They're all just generic roaring CGI things. There's like a breath of a moment where Savannah confronts his father and is like, oh, greed is the one that you've given into. Uh, you know, greed. You can have him. Well, and greed then, has has four hands instead cause, of cause two. Because he's grabby, uh, yeah. sure. And and uh, gluttony is like big and fat. But other than that, I mean, it's just uh, it, the way my husband put it was they might as well be the seven deadly velociraptors. There's just <laughs> there's nothing like unique or interesting about them. If those temptations, like the temptation that the eternal champion has to face was in some way like dealing with those sins, it would just be such a more interesting story. If Savannah had given in to one of them specifically, even in that little confrontation where it's just Shazam and Savannah and Envy, it could have so easily, that little speech that he gives could have so easily been tweaked to have been about Envy in a way that would draw have drawn Envy out. And it's just, it feels like such a missed opportunity. That said, I think I like Savannah better than you guys did as a bad guy, both because I like Mark Strong's performance and because I just find him more relatable than most villains. I mean, he was put through the ringer for no good reason, uh, and it warped his life. Like, he went through this this traumatic thing, much more so than, like, somebody like the Joker who wants to watch the world burn or, you know, somebody who, who went through this, like, weird experience and came out on the other side as a Batman villain. Savannah seems to me like somebody who's kind of justified in all the crazy that he goes through. Just overall, uh, I mean, I mostly enjoyed it. It's the umpty billionth superhero movie uh, this year. But I just, at this point, I go into DC films with such low expectations and such an expectation of just coming out like vaguely weary and vaguely sad at like what they've done to to heroes that I like and that I think are interesting. And this was a rare opportunity to visit an iconic superhero like a superhero with a long history uh and a lot of like like built up material to draw on that i wasn't very familiar yeah. with at all yeah me too that is a an interesting wrinkle in the the superhero deluge and that it like shazam has like you said been around for a long time but i don't know anyone who is like really familiar with this comics history as i glance over in keith's direction i, 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 know, I know a little bit, <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Uh, I, I mean you knew that he wasn't an orphan you know about the tv show you wrote about that <laughs> that's true well i mean part of why you don't know as much about the hero until recently known as captain marvel is because he was kind of shut out legally of the count oh, landscape. Right. Okay. Uh, because for a while he was more popular than superman he sold more comic books than superman uh extremely popular in the 40s 
what was now known as DC sued for copyright infringement because they thought he was too close. To, they claimed he was too close to Superman, and essentially, legally, they could not publish any more Captain Marvel comics. And in the early seventies, um, DC had the idea of, you know, we can pay you to use these characters that were legally preventing you from publish for in, in any other way, and uh, kind of got folded into the DC universe that way. And, and so, I think his lore is a little less familiar to people. But if you were around in the World War II, you probably would be very, very familiar. I mean, his readership for Captain Marvel slash Shazam was always a little younger than even like Superman or Batman. It was always like more whimsical and more fairy tale like. Um, you know, there's a major character who's kind of alluded to in, in this movie is is uh, Talkie Tani, who is the tiger version of Captain Marvel. Uh, so that kind of tells you the level they were, they were going for there. But I mean, I mean Shazam's a lot of fun, and I, I think part of the why I can get a little comics nerdy here for a second. I think this movie smartly borrows from what. Jeff Johns has been doing with the character in, in DC Comics, and, and he's sort of the master at taking sort of these big superhero concepts and fitting them into a contemporary sensibility without losing what the flavor was of them that made them interesting in the first place. And I think we get a lot of that, too, with all the scenes of Billy just being a kid. You know, I, I my, my my favorite moment in this movie is uh, lightning from my hands, where he's just, just shooting lightning in the <laughs> yeah. air for tourists and at the top of the <laughs> steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's, uh, it's delightful. There are stretches of this film that I enjoyed. I'm starting to kind of, I am, I'm not dreading the DCU movies that much. I think there's something a little bit funkier about these last couple about Aquaman and Shazam. For one, they're discrete units that are not so bound up in the whole, you know, universe, which is refreshing because they're so deep into the MCU now. Um, you know, they're colorful. They kind of do their own thing. Um, they're a little bit loose limbed. This one way too much of 132 minutes, but there's a lot here to like. I mean, I, you know, and I, and I think the film, the film at its best, Reminded me of another superhero film that I think is hugely underrated and sweet and fun, and that's uh, Sky High. Did anyone get any oh, yeah, sure. Sky okay, High vibes from that? So it's got that, and both films, both this and Sky High, have so much heart to them, and uh, particularly with regard to family elements. And here, this 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 foster family that comes together over the course of the film. I mean, that's, that's very sweet. Uh, and, um, it, it pays off emotionally. It pays off in the plotting of it and everyone gets to play a role. And, uh, and you get I, an Adam Brody cameo out of it. So good. <laughs> they're, they're, so good. And that's, that's good. That's speaking of good kid adult actor casting. That was, uh, that was very good. I yeah. thought. Yeah. And those kids, you know, on paper, it sounds, sounds horrible. That's not like it just could be kind of cloying and kind of wedged in to have all these other kids characters, but they're all pretty delightful. Even like the little girl, the little precocious girl who could have been, really grating but i think yeah. i think she's really well played and, she, and she, she was a lot of fun yeah she was my fiance's favorite part of the movie yeah <laughs> and the payoff for that is really great oh. when i when i talk about not being that familiar with shazam signifiers i'm, I'm kind of talking about those kids mm -hmm. like they look at researching it after the film i like i find out that all like all of those kids like you know freddie and darla are like actually part of of continuity if i'd known if i'd been reading recent comics i would have recognized their names and i would have known where the story was going and the fact that i didn't who those kids are and who they turn into was the movie's biggest payoff for me and good on the marketers behind this for not 
not yeah. giving us that any any indication. I, I, knew I don't Brody think. was even in this. Yeah, so. no, it was, it was a it was a well kept secret, and it, it it worked. That's just that's money in the bank. You got Brody in there. That's, that's the <laughs> I, I, I like it. Yeah, me Brody. too. I, 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 saw, I saw all all seasons of the OC. No, he's good. And I always felt like you know, hopefully this will lead to like a little bit more uh, high profile stuff because I always liked Adam Brody. I always want to know the story behind this, but they were remaking Revenge of the Nerds, and he was the star of it, and they, they shut down production. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what happened there, but not, not to sidetrack Speaking us. of not knowing what happened, I like I made a point of this on Twitter, but it still weirds me out. Uh, Jumon Hansu is is in this movie mm-hmm. in a major role. He's got a lot of screen time. He does a lot of talking. He's the Wizard Shazam. There are no publicity photos of him. If you watch the trailers, he's uh, off screen or a silhouette, or you see the back of his head it's like somebody wanted to hide that he was in this movie and it's really weird i Maybe want it's about emphasizing the part of the movie that it's that, fun that's fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean I, I i you know jaman hansu aside like that's not a very good character i don't think like oh, like no. I, I feel like there was a lot there's a lot of missed opportunity for humor there it honestly could also be have to do something with the fact that he is in a marvel movie yeah. that's also in theaters right now and he was just an aquaman as well but also like i don't i don't realize it was him until uh, like halfway through i recognize his voice because yeah. he's so deep under under wizard drag or whatever you want to call <laughs> yeah. it you please call it wizard drag that's exactly what we want to call it yeah he's really like carving out a, a niche for himself and like forgettable roles in giant superhero movies <laughs> but not, not even forgettable but just thankless i suppose yeah i just i yeah I, until you said that it hadn't occurred to me to wonder if he was basically like just just please take me out of this as much as possible because <laughs> it's i mean it's just it's kind of an embarrassing role it's uh i don't know our old old buddy uh kyle ryan used to talk about his least favorite genre element being wizards and shit uh <laughs> which was always just like this this single hyphenated adjective and th- this movie just makes me feel the wizards and shit aspect of it all like the magic of this movie is just very sloppy and, and not very thought through and i the whole movie just really needs to fast forward past it and get to the fun part faster and, and like the other parts of this movie make me think like these filmmakers could have made those parts fun like I, mean, I think there there's a way to make those wizards layer scenes like fun and and uh and funny and self-aware you know but it like leans into the sort of like more grimdark uh, elements of this movie in in those moments so yeah i'm, I'm it's, an it's got a dour humorlessness to it that feels weirdly ugly when like when the wizard Shazam is conferring magical powers to be awesome on you, but he does it by screaming at you and belittling you mm-hmm. like this. Just everything about that relationship feels feels weird and unnatural. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the classic handoff moment of the, the Green Lantern ring from this like this downed alien who's like, I have to confer like a grand and noble power on like the grandest and noblest human that I can find because I'm dying. It's the same thing here, except with with just like screaming, like just shut up, kid, and take the power <laughs> so I can crumble into dust. I don't have time to explain and this is not going to be fun for you. Just shut up and take my power. It's so weird tonally it's tonally this movie in general is so weird the Mm -hmm. way it veers back and forth between the grim dark thing and and the fun thing and it it makes it feel like we caught the dc universe like in the process of emerging from its chrysalis into a better form (laughs) uh and i look forward to what the next couple of movies are going to be like you know because this one just didn't didn't make it aquaman kind of had that 
Oh yeah, that, for sure. Had that brightness and fun to it as well. So I, I but it also had the back and forth, and exactly. it also felt totally you weird. Gotta just, you know, it's baby steps, baby steps. So I, I, I should say before we move forward that I think Zachary Levi is just perfectly cast. If you're mm-hmm. a fan of the show Chuck, I mean, this is a very Chuck-like thing that he has to do. This is Chuck was all about this ordinary guy who who has this power inside him he has no idea how to control and that show got a lot of comedy uh, out of that and this film gets a lot of comedy out of that same situation well we're about to see more of him because he just announced a sequel to shazam (gasps) is happening paying off that uh that mid-credit sequence which i had no idea what it was about but i mr mind yeah i well i i am thanks (laughs) to the internet and it's many uh credits explainers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that exist and in in this case i found very useful so i mean uh, they started teasing that thing like like yeah, in it, the opening in the, sequence you start seeing yeah. mr mind i know and and i knew it was something because the guy sitting a few seats down from me was like had a conniption every time you know this, <laughs> that, that appeared so i knew it had to be something from the comics but i was not familiar do we know who did the, the voice mr. for mr mind no. And I wonder if it's in the credits because yeah. uh, it's kind of a giveaway in it. But speaking to the sort of, is this the DCEU, you know, emerging from its chrysalis, like, you know, the the fact that it, it is setting up a sequel involving a space worm? Mm. Question mark? Sure. Uh, a yeah. super intelligent space <laughs> yeah. worm? Yes. It's certainly laying the foundations to potentially lean into the more fun and silly side of this film in a future entry. So I, I would hope that's what happens. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to bag on someone who's clearly having a, a hard time, but I mean, I, I think it's just taking a long, a long time to discard the, the Zack Snyderness of, of 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 it all of of the early ones and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and the idea that to make a superhero movie that w- isn't just for kids, you have to make them super grim and murdery, and 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 that's you know I I've, I'm f- very fond of these characters. I was never really particularly fond of that treatment of these characters, so. But it, it, there's still a lot of residual darkness. Uh, it's just to, Zack Snyder all over the place. Yeah. Just, and, you know, him him popping up and tell, telling people that they're stupid if they don't like murder Batman. Yeah. Like, why is he still so much in the conversation? Well, just out there doing his thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Big and Shazam. Bring her mouth if you're gonna kidnap her. It's not gonna make her less scared, okay? Darla, it's me. It's Billy. I know I don't look like me. A wizard made me look Maybe like. Maybe don't this. start with the wizard. It's just gonna make her more confused. Some old guy brought me to a temple and he made me say Shazam. Rosa! Verbally triggered body manipulation properties? You can switch by saying Shazam! Baby, was that you? Are you okay? Uh. I, I was screwing in a bulb. Listen to me, Darla. You cannot tell anybody about this, all right? But it's Billy. He's a hero. Yeah, but if a supervillain finds out that he's a hero, that endangers us, okay? A hero's loved ones are like the perfect bad guy target. Is she even good at keeping secrets? Moderate. No. Oh, God. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. The first thing, these are wish fulfillment fantasies about uh, uh, boys and adulthood, so... uh... That's a big one, right? That's a connection. <laughs> it's a, yeah, you know what? 
You put it that way, I, yeah. can, I can definitely see that connection between <laughs> these two films. <laughs> I think it's interesting that both of these films end up being about, in part, it, there's like, there's, it, it starts with the physicality of being a grown up. You know, uh, Shazam is such a swole superhero. He's so huge. And uh, Tom Hanks, like, you don't think of him as a big dude, but when he he's first transformed, you see him mostly naked and like, he looks like a, he's in decent shape. Like, he's a big guy compared to the little kid that he was trying to get into his little clothes <laughs> trying to trying to force himself into his tiny jeans and peeking down into his underwear to see what he's packing thank but, god the underwear expanded it follows the whole claw uh, yeah, of physics you know you know I'm, I'm not sure i really feel the realism of that but it was kind of necessary so i think it's just interesting that both of these movies play with the idea of this is what it's going to be like to be a grown-up but but with big it's like what it's going to be like to be a grown up is having a super fun ass job where you get to do the same thing you love but you also get paid like upwards of $187 <laughs> for doing it uh and you know you you're going to get to like fill your dope ass house with toys and play with them and you're going to get a, like a hot girlfriend who doesn't realize you're only 13 like all of these like sort of warped fantasies of what adulthood is like and <laughs> Then, then Shazam turns around and is like, "We're gonna get to drink beer, and <laughs> beer is terrible. Yep. And you know what? Let's just let's just fall back on eating junk food." Both of these films, I think, do do interesting things with the idea of what it means to be an adult is alcohol and porn, and then they both pull back from mm-hmm. that like really hard. Just like, except on the other hand, those things aren't fun. You know what's fun? Fun is toys and and playing and staying up late and eating. T- terrible food <laughs> and charging people's phones for them <laughs> uh yeah no i um i'm glad you brought up the thing about them buying beer in shazam and deciding they didn't like it because it it brought to mind the point in big where you know again she's like do you want to drink some wine and it's just like you know he, he like it doesn't even occur to him to josh that like that's a thing he should do um it does occur to billy and freddie and maybe that just I don't know, speaks to how kids are different or just something that Big didn't want to get into. But in terms of uh, vice, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem like something Josh uh, even wants to pursue. There's a little bit of curiosity about it from Billy and Freddie and Shazam. I'm thinking also of the the strip club, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of runner, (laughs) uh, you know, which thankfully is kept pretty light and they don't off screen yeah yeah yeah, very important that they (laughs) keep it off screen yeah which which i think is really interesting the way that two films deal with a lady's boob like in one you have this this very like gentle cautious confused exploration and the other you have i went to a strip club and i'm out of money i need more money (laughs) (laughs) but both of them what a difference a year makes you know this movie's a little older a little older (laughs) in uh, shazam both of these movies have have like just weird i mean obviously the people behind Shazam watched big there is is a gag there's a big gag stuffed in the middle of Shazam that's just like hey we know what we're referencing we know this movie but there are all of these weird little crossovers like the fact that Tom Hanks has in his home a soda machine that he's rigged up to dispense all of the soda that you don't he need wants. any coins you don't need any 
coins. It's free. And then on the other hand, we have, you know, uh, we can't really call them Shazam, Captain Sparkle Fingers and Freddy uh, drinking the immense pile of Dr. Peppers. You know, just just that idea of like infinite soda also being like one of the fantasies that every kid should have, I guess. And a window as to who's sponsoring which movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pepsi machine and, they, uh, and yeah. that big. They also don't exactly shoplift, but they get a little scammy, you know, the, it's, the billion, billion. It's probably, it's yeah, shoplifting. Yeah, you know, and um, again, that kind of speaks to like a little more innocence in, in big than, than we have in Shazam around childhood. And it, like, as, as we've said, there is a bit of an age difference between Josh and Billy and obviously a difference in kids then versus now. But um, also... You know, the first time we meet Billy, he's like messing with the cops. He he's locking the cops in a pawn shop. I mean, like that's probably illegal. I'm guessing in a way that <laughs> seems like weirdly unnecessary. Like the yeah. fact that he the first time he meets another kid with a computer, the computers the kids like. I, I looked it up online. Like, here's your mom. Like, yeah. what's the big deal? He's been through what, like, eighty-seven Batsons, and the implication is that he had to do some kind of like scam to trap the cops in a pawn shop so he could, uh, he could like access the Squads system for every one of those, like. To, to find other Batsons? Like, why didn't he go to a library and look it up online? Yeah, I, I I think it just speaks to Billy being from a more rough environment than, you know, Josh and his his loving home and bedroom that he shares with his baby sister. You know, he's just a lot more coddled of a young man than Billy is. So, And I think that plays out in how they engage with adulthood to a certain extent. And I mean, that, and that's another one of our big connections is moms and families. I mean, that Billy's birth mom is quite different from yeah. from from Josh's. And uh, that's actually one element of Shazam I really appreciated that was the realism in the way that whole situation played out with uh, Billy and, and his biological mom about how his memories of them together were not perhaps the correct perspective or not a perspective that he understood and how she didn't want him and how when he comes back into her life that's a problem as well and all that is a hard thing for a movie like this to incorporate straight on so i kind of respected the film for doing it yeah they they land at different places i mean big is all about you know your places with your family you go back you have this loving uh home that embraces you and and shazam's about the families you make in in the world and the families that you form when your own when your own family is either absent or or, or rejects you and then i think that's an interesting contrast between these two films and yet at the same time, you know, both of them play on this idea of like being with your parents at a carnival, uh, like as a small child, like being a, maybe a rite of passage is overdoing it, but it's like, it's a rite of passage for Josh, who's trying to actively escape his parents. And it's the source of all of the trauma for Billy, who accidentally slash not accidentally on her part escapes his mom it, it's just it's interesting to me how the how much those two scenes parallel in terms of getting away from a parental figure like in this purposely artificial environment of of play of childhood of fun of like like overstated and energetically false childhood that is a carnival uh, and what it means for both of those kids when they're away from their parents in that environment talking about the carnival and billy's mom just reminded me of him running off after the compass toy that she wins him and isn't what josh gives susan during their sleepover a little 
compass. Oh my god, it's a compass <laughs> ring. You're right. Oh, so many connections. <laughs> These movies are the same movie, and I did not realize it. But no, you're right. And he and he actually says something to her about so you won't you won't get lost. Yeah. And she obviously takes it as like this sort of symbolic emotional thing because she has kind of lost her way and mm-hmm. he's trying to guide her back to the path. But then Billy's mom wins him this compass and says something about, you know, and so you'll always find your way home. And it becomes this big thing because symbolically for him, it represents the home mm-hmm. that he doesn't have. And he ends up giving it to her because she needs to find her way home. There's so much emotional weight on these little toy compasses. <laughs> They are very symbolic compasses. I mean, it's very hard to make a compass not be symbolic. Yeah. You know, the the magical thing pulled by the force of the earth that tells you which way you're going. It's just it's just a design to symbol. And then just shrunk down to a little toy, a little child size toy metaphor. Can can we talk about toys in these films? <laughs> yeah, they do carry more significance than you know, merely play things. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's, uh, the the toy store sequence in Shazam is so obviously a nod to Big even before the piano comes along. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's we're going to put you in this environment where you're surrounded by toys and he's, he's hucking the toys desperately at Savannah, like trying to fend off this like relentless specter of like adult responsibility that he doesn't want. Like he just, he wants to be f- having fun and throwing sparks for tourists and this like relentless horrible thing is coming after him and he he literally tries to fend him off with like childhood signifiers and <laughs> not it just any work. Uh, batman and superman dolls batman and superman <laughs> yeah. dolls just I, like... I, liked, I thought it was interesting the way the way those heroes get commodified and, the, oh, yeah. and some of the other yeah. ones get, it, it's clever and I, I it really has a great payoff in the climax with the the boy is playing batman versus superman and then looks outside to see this other thing that's that's more compelling ultimately i think that if there's a shaking off the chrysalis moment for this movie uh, that that might be it yeah i just i there's so much there's so much about play in these movies and for for josh like adult josh like play is something that other adults have forgotten how to do even if they are commodifying it uh and the fact that he still is in touch with what toys mean gives him like a career and respect but also the chance to play with like bigger and better toys and then billy is just like this kid that never really seems to have toys like he has this one toy that his mom gave him that's symbolic of everything he lost and he has these toys that can't protect him from from the thing that's coming after him uh, i don't know i just i i find the degree to which these films pile on the toy symbolism to be kind of bizarre and fun uh, just just a side note it, big is a, a a reminder of how terribly dull um, computer games used to be <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> i love that stuff though come on you i know i liked stuff. it i liked it too yeah yeah can, yeah, can you imagine playing little... one now Sure, but at the time it was like, oh my god, I have this choice I yeah. can make, and I can type in what I what commands is going to be. No, I I played Zork, I played uh, I played all those, but <laughs> but I, I just now I don't know. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um. To, to continue the toy discussion, it, it's an opportunity to bring up a scene from Big that I really like, and we didn't really talk about, which is the boardroom scene with the skyscraper that turns <laughs> into a robot, and yeah. and Josh is being like, well, I don't get it. What's and, fun about this? Yeah. Yeah it's a well-written scene it's a well-performed scene and it like gets at kind of the heart of like why josh belongs in this role or like why he why or you see the appeal of him being in this role 
but I was just saying it's like it's really funny I don't get it because like as an adult like a lot of toys you look at a lot of toys you're like what I don't understand the appeal there you know but from a kid's like you need the kid's perspective to tell you like what is fun and what is not and I think it's just it's it's pretty smart that that it's a great touch it's the perfect job for them to imagine him having and and also you know for him to have it he gets he then gets the resources to finance all of these other fantasies that it's electronic comic books we don't even see he bails on that meeting ultimately yeah. but uh we don't even see how that's gonna play out it wouldn't, wouldn't have gone well <laughs> would it have? i don't know did you guys have flashbacks at all to to barry levinson's toys during this film i've never seen toys oh my gosh yeah should i see it I have absolutely that no like idea. What about, the, what about the toy? Did we talk about the toy? That's a very different thing. No, but uh, uh, toys also has this idea of like you have a war for the soul of a toy organization between uh, like a very literal uh, humorless man and a very childlike uh, child at heart kind of man. And I just I kept thinking of that during Big. I guess one other thing we didn't really touch on in Big, and I, it's less a point of comparison for for Shazam, but how much the market testing and all and the losing touch of why you got into this in the first place was a commentary on where movies were in, in the 80s as well and i almost feel like you know, you know just the very existence of shazam suggests that that battle was was lost because it is clearly uh the product of a lot of converging market forces but i think they find the film managed to get a lot of um you know find a lot of character within the demands of making a superhero movie on that big a scale so Big is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and for digital rental via the usual streaming services, Shazam is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show, in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, this isn't something that I've seen since the uh, last podcast, but it is something that happened since the last podcast. Uh, the Criterion Channel launched. Um, it, it was actually a, a big deal on social media when Filmstruck shut down. Uh, there were there were a lot of like sad sad pieces and uh, like mournful takes on social media. But as many people pointed out, there were a lot more people that loved the idea of Filmstruck than people who actually supported Filmstruck. Now the Criterion channel has come along and uh, like Filmstruck had the Criterion collection. The Criterion collection is now moving to the Criterion channel where for a subscription fee, you can have access to a, like a rotating selection of Criterion movies. Uh, not all of them, because as has been pointed out, uh, licensing for some of these movies from the studios is very expensive. So they can't necessarily have like all of Wes Anderson's films available because of, of the payments involved. But they do have uh, just an amazing collection of terrific films. Um, I think a bunch of us are going to maybe talk about that a little. My my pick out of the whole batch um, for just like if you're if you're just looking at the immense wealth of of films out there if you're looking for an excuse to buy into the criterion channel uh i would point people at wings of desire uh vim vendor's mm. film about angels in germany and their relationship with humanity this was one of the first 
like real art house films I was ever exposed to. And I, I didn't know what to make of it at the time, but it's one of those films that just moved into my imagination and colonized it and just and lived there. And it's become such a signifier to me of art house cinema that tells you what it means to be a, a person in the world and how to navigate that space. It's a, a beautifully crafted film about angels observing humanity and trying to understand what it be- means to be human. And then eventually, in in the cases of some of them, crossing over into humanity, giving up their immortality, giving up their ability to, to pass unseen among humans and listen in on their thoughts and observe what they do and taking up the burden of mortality and of like a single being a single fixed point in space. It's a beautifully acted movie. Um, Bruno Ganz, who uh, recently died, stars in it. Uh, Peter Falk, who died quite a a while ago, stars in it. Otto Sander, Solveig Dommartin. It's it's a terrific cast, but what makes this film for me is just the art of showing what it would be like to be outside humanity and fascinated with humanity, observing how people live and what they think, living in this space where you're exposed to the thoughts of the world and the feeling of the world, but not being of it, and then what it would be like to transition into being part of the world. It's such a beautiful document of, of that experience visualized in a way that I've never seen it visualized before or since. So Wings of Desire, strongly recommend people check it out if they haven't already seen it. Yeah, and there's like nine other films by vendors on the Criterion channel too. <laughs> so if you want to start from there, I mean, the Wings of Desire, you know, one of the formative film going experiences of my life seeing that movie in, in uh, 87 when it came out, um, never having really experienced much in the way of foreign language films, certainly not of that in, um, intensity and difficulty. And um, and it really st- stuck with me. It's a very important that, movie for me. The soundtrack of that movie alone. Oof. He was good. Uh, Genevieve? <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to go pretty much to the exact opposite end of the spectrum from a Vin Bender's movie on Criterion Channel and recommend a, Netflix, a new Netflix film, <laughs> uh, a, a comedy, uh, like an 80-minute comedy uh, called The Breaker Uppers, which is a New Zealand comedy. Um, uh, Taika Waititi's name is like on the poster. like It's from him, but as far as I can tell, he has almost no involvement with the film itself. Uh, it is written, directed by, and stars two women named Madeline Sammy and Jackie Van Beek, whose characters, Jen and Mel, run an agency in Auckland, New Zealand called the Breaker Upperers. And they, as you might be able to tell from that name, what they do is they uh, help people who need help breaking up with their significant others through means ranging from having a direct talk with them to pretending that the person breaking up with them has died and gone missing. So it's a pretty like high concepty premise, but it's based in this female friendship, Jen and Mel, who met when they were both being two-timed by the same man in their early 20s and have kind of forged their friendship uh, in this very sort of cynical, toxic uh, chamber. And the movie is kind of just a romantic comedy about them finding out how to be friends with each other for real. The emotional narrative of this movie reminds me a lot of uh, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, Um, but the comedic tone is very different. I would put it more in the realm of something like Broad City. Uh, it's a very shaggy comedy. Uh, you know, it's a kind of 
movie that's going to stop in the middle for an extended musical sequence set to um, Celine Dion's It's All Coming Back to Me Now and maybe ends with another musical <laughs> sequence. But uh, these two women, Madeline Sammy, Jackie Van Beek, they're very fun. They have a really great chemistry. Um, Jackie Van Beek was uh, in What We Do in the Shadows as uh, one of the familiars, but I was not familiar with her beyond that, nor at all with Madeline Sammy. And they're both a lot of fun in this movie, which is, I, I really do have a hard time thinking of any other word for it besides shaggy, because <laughs> it's like, I don't want to like oversell it as like comedic genius, but it's like a very fun movie to just kind of like drop into for 90 minutes and live in these two women's comedic sensibility for that time. Um, and, you know, it's a New Zealand comedy, which, you know, I think if you've seen a few of those, you kind of maybe have a sense for what that means tonally. And there's a, a definitely some of that happening here, but in a more of a, like I said, romantic comedy between friends setup. So uh, I enjoyed it a lot. It's uh, easily uh, accessible on Netflix. It's called The Breaker Upperers. Uh, <laughs> just rolls off the tongue and yeah i would i would recommend giving it a look yeah i'm kind of glad that you recommended that because uh it seems like netflix will throw the focus on like one film a week like mm. it'll be the big thing it'll be triple frontier or, or unicorn store or bird box or something that they feel like is going to draw a lot of eyes and all these other acquisitions uh tend to slip a little bit under the surface so if you can kind of uh find Ones that are good like that, you know, very easy to see. Uh, Keith, so you and I uh, can just have a chat here, I think, because we sure. are, we also are going to talk about the Criterion Channel, but also but about the same program too mm-hmm. that we're we're looking to. Can you can you explain to the to the uh, listeners? Well, one thing one thing they're doing because it's not just the Criterion Collection; they're also going to be licensing films along themes uh, from other sources. And the one thing they launched was a thing called the Columbia Noir uh, Collection, which is basically what it sounds like. It's a bunch of noir films from Columbia, but, you know, with a couple of, no, you know, a couple of things that are worth noting is that Columbia at that point was, um, at the height of noir, was operating on, on tighter budgets than, than a lot of other studios. So you get uh, somewhat scrappier productions, but it also kind of spans everything from the the you know, mid-40s film that I'm going to talk about in a second uh, to a later film that you're going to talk about, and then ultimately up, all the way up through Experiment in Terror, which was Blake Edwards' follow-up to Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, but I, I decided just, you know, I wrote about the service for, for Polygon, and I thought I'd just watch the first thing that caught my eye, and that was the first selection, the oldest selection in the Columbia North thing, which is um, my name is Julia and Ross. The shortest, and the shortest. You know, they're all most of them are short, short though. There's yeah, a yeah. lot of Other one hour, minutes. ten, one hour, you know, and then one hour twenty minute movies. But it's um, my name is Julia Ross by Joseph H. Lewis, who prolific director, probably best known for Gun Crazy, and maybe for this one uh, second. But it's um, this really tight uh, noir story that's adapted from a novel by quote-unquote Anthony Gilbert, who is actually the, the pen name of Lucy Beatrice Mallison, who's um, just wrote it under, under a male name. But this is a, very much a film, a story about the precarious position of, of being a woman alone in the world. Uh, Julia Ross, played by Nina Falk, is um, a single woman, no attachments, no family. And she kind of she applies for a job for a, a private secretary to, to a wealthy woman. And 
wakes up in Cornwall in this, this mansion and being told that uh, her name isn't Julia Ross, you know, it's something else entirely, and that she's married and, and she's just forgotten everything. And she never buys it, but everyone around her does because women's complaints are often just, just hysterical and, and, and psychosomatic. And, and uh, so a place with that is there's some really neat echoes of, of, of Hitchcock in it, but it's its its own thing. And, and it's uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was terrific. And, and it's an hour and five minutes well spent. I'm looking forward to watching more in the series, including another Joseph H. Lewis film called So Dark the Night. Yeah, and there's also a couple of Fritz Lang movies, mm-hmm. The Big Heat, which is which is one of his uh, big noirs. Uh, another one called Human Desire that I haven't seen. There's a Jacques Tenor film called Nightfall. Uh, it, it, it's like a couple of things about the Criterion Channel in general. One is that I, I'm really surprised by the sheer number of films that are available to watch. Um, and they are kind of a little bit buried on the site, which I think is by design in a way. I think I think because I think you ha- also have an element of the site where where there's a lot of curation involved, mm-hmm. like there is with this Colombian noir series, and, and maybe some of those titles that that are tucked away deep in, in the service might get a little bit more of a highlight in those circumstances. Um, so I, I was surprised to learn, you know, just now that that the. Olivier Assayas film Cold Water which I'd spent years even decades trying to trying to to see to even see it was never available uh, I saw it at Music Box last year and it just blew my mind um, and there it is it's just there if you want to see it but my first Criterion Channel experience was of course Columbia Noir that's immediately where I went and I saw uh, the Don Siegel film The Lineup from 1958 and it, it is v- nuts uh it, it is a film that that is full of action it is it has a uh a shootout and a car chase and a crash all within really probably the first 30 seconds of the movie or minute of the movie right leading right into the title so you're so you just get this really slam bang sequence to start and it's a movie that revolves around a drug running scheme in which drugs are planted on unsuspecting innocent people as they're traveling you know so the first scene takes place at an airport uh which in which a guy is unknowingly transport you know transporting like uh you know a hundred thousand dollars worth of heroin inside of a you know cheap statuette that he's bought um so there's that but but the, the lineup has a lot i mean Stan siegel who's, a, who's an excellent genre filmmaker it uh has a wonderful use of real locations in san francisco uh, it's got a really good Eli Wallach performance, and uh, it's just—it's just mean. It's just a mean <laughs> film in which a lot of shocking things happen to to uh, to children and other vulnerable people. It's just a really—it's nasty, and and uh, and uh, you know, I think you know if you if you are a fan of film, film noir and crime films. Um, you know, seeing that that kind of that kind of that level of nastiness at, at play is is kind of a selling point. So, uh, I you know, it, lineup is under ninety under ninety minutes, tight as a drum, uh, very entertaining and kind of a good start for me in this particular series. And I'm really excited to move forward. I, I want to see. Uh, I've never seen Murder by Contract, which is a Martin Scorsese favorite. He mm-hmm. absolutely loves that one. And uh, and this this movie Driver Crooked Road with Mickey Rooney. I mean, that's I've Mickey Rooney in a noir context is again nothing I've ever experienced. So uh, I'm excited about that. Just excited to see um, uh, movies from the 20th century become available <laughs> in large numbers again. <laughs> so uh, the Criterion Channel, I think, I think if you're if uh, if you're uh, a 
Next Picture Show listener, I'm sure you are uh, you know, excited to uh, see what's on that service because it's really worthwhile. And I think also that's not a film I like to imagine that I'm going to get to every great worthwhile film at some point in my life, but you know, I'm not. But also this, in this particular film, I don't know that it would have come my way were it not for the curation here and for just sort of like you know this this uh service putting it in front of me so thus ends our unpaid advertisement yeah. the Criterion <laughs> channel i am very excited about it. It, it i'm enjoying it quite a bit yeah that's great and so that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pair will come out april 30th and may 7th Tasha, what's coming up next? After making the much-praised 2014 horror movie It Follows, writer-director David Robert Mitchell seemed to disappear for a while. Maybe that's because his latest film, Under the Silver Lake, is so ambitious, complicated, and twisty that it took Mitchell extra time to make. Or maybe, in keeping with the film's woozy paranoia and obsession with conspiracy theories, there's something much more sinister going on. Under the Silver Lake, which A24 is giving a minimal three-day theatrical window ahead of its VOD release, follows in the footsteps of Roman Polanski's Chinatown in the way it follows a searcher for the truth around Los Angeles as he chases a mystery that turns into a massive conspiracy. Both films wind up being about the quest for truth, the weirder side of the California dream, the ruthless people who hide behind wealth and public indifference as they pursue their own twisted goals, and the question of whether the truth really matters in the end. We'll be looking at how Chinatown and Under the Silver Lake work together in our next two episodes, assuming the Reptoids, the Deep State, and the Illuminati don't band together to stop us. Well, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Big, Shazam, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode... Where can we find everyone these days, Tasha? You can find me at TheVerge.com, where I am the film and TV editor. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve? Uh, you can find me at Vulture.com, where I am the deputy TV editor, and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. I write for a bunch of places. I write for Vulture. I write for The Verge. I write for Polygon. I write for Slate. Uh, I'm just, I'm just, uh, all, uh, Mel Magazine. You know, there's a lot of different places, and you can read them all, all my clips collected at KeithFips.com. How updated is KeithFips.com? It's getting more updated. <laughs> okay. There's a large gap. It's like, it's like I fell off the earth between July and March or whatever, but I'm now updating it again. <laughs> I might even, like, I'm considering, like, doing some blogging there. Just old-fashioned, really? like, what's yeah. Newsletter. Everybody, kids like I newsletters might newsletter. now. I might do it. Might, might, I might I do subs- a newsletter. I'm subscribing to newsletters left and right. Yeah, it's going to be a hefty fee, though. My newsletter. <laughs> really? It's going to be the best. It's going to be the best we get to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Scott, how about you? You can follow me at Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And uh, you can find my work at the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Variety, uh, the, the Ringer, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. And I really want to point out a piece that we just published recently by Andrew Lapin uh, about Agnes Varda. He live. Uh, Andrew was in Paris uh, when she passed, and he went to her neighborhood and did some reporting and uh, wrote this piece that's a mix of analysis and reportage that's quite beautiful and special. And, and uh, I was really happy that we could give a home to it because I think it's a really good piece. So check that out on Oscilloscope's Musings blog. 
You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Supersonic man out of you Stop me now I'm having such a good time I'm having a ball